Uh, today we're wrapping up the series that we've been in, going through this letter to a group of people called the Romans. They were Christ's followers who the Apostle Paul wrote to around AD 57, and he wanted them to know exactly what the gospel is all about. He also wanted to teach them and us how to live in response to the gospel. As we've been working through this entire letter, what we've noticed is that Paul wants us to theologically understand what the gospel is, but practically know how to live it out. And so last week, as we looked at chapters 12 and 13, Paul rattles off a whole host of things that you and I can do to show that we're living in response to the gospel. And I kind of categorize those things into some categories like how to live humbly, how to love well, how to use the gift that God's given us to work with others in serving God and those around us. Also, how to uh, submit to authority, how not to take revenge. There's a lot of onesies and twosies that all can kind of be summarized by saying we live and we love like Jesus. Now, we talk a lot about that here at Crossroads, what it looks like to live in love like Jesus, and we try to resource ourselves and you about what that looks like. That's why we created something we call the Roadmap. It's a, an online platform that just helps you have a picture of what it looks like to live in love like Jesus by being with God, by being with others, and by being sent. Now, those three expressions are not linear necessarily. Um, they are not sequential even, but they are interwoven as well as essential in what it looks like to live and to love like Jesus. And if you haven't checked out the roadmap in a while, you might do that at cccgo.com forward slash roadmap. As we're being conformed into the image of Jesus, there is fruit and that fruit looks like attitudes and actions, behaviors, even motivations that are being transformed from the way that our lives would look like if the sinful nature was in control to what it looks like when the Holy Spirit is in control of our lives. And Paul's made it very clear all throughout the letter to the Romans that what we believe should dictate how we behave. He wraps this letter up by giving some very intentional instructions about how, how we live impacts the way that we treat each other. Today, I want you to understand that you and I have been created for a relationship with God. That looks like communion. But we've also been created to have a relationship with others, and that looks like community. Again, because what we believe impacts how we behave, it especially influences how we view and treat others. So today we're going to look at what Paul wraps up the letter by saying in chapters 14, 15, and 16. Let's just start with the very first sentence of chapter 14, verse 1. Paul says this, Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Now Paul's going to unpack exactly what that means, but I think we just need to stop and pause with this one sentence right here. If our world ever needed a moment or a message, I think this one sentence is quite timely. There is so much polarization in our world today that has led to frustration, isolation, even led to violence. It's so easy to dismiss or even disparage those who might not think like we do. People who might not be as enlightened as us or as open-minded as us. Maybe not as mature as us or even relevant. As we might think that we are ourselves. We can judge, we can criticize, we can even ostracize anyone 
that we feel is wrong compared to what we think is right. And Paul says, instead, we're to be accepting of those whose faith is weak. Now, who is he referring to when he describes them having weak faith? Do the people that Paul is describing feel um, honored by him calling them weak faith? Would you enjoy being described as somebody who has weak faith? Well, most commentators believe that Paul is actually referring to the Jewish Christians who are in Rome. These were people who, for the past 2,000 years, have been living their life based on the Old Testament law. It began when God instituted a covenant with Abraham and the people of Israel. It continued when God sent the law through the the, uh, servant Moses on Mount Sinai. For centuries, these people's lives had been directed by these instructions, these commands, these required celebrations, dietary restrictions, even prohibitions of how to relate to other people or other nations. The people were having a hard time wrapping their mind around what it looked like to be righteous by faith instead of by obedience to the law. The strong were those people who really didn't have that baggage, most likely the Gentile Christians who really didn't have any burden of following the Old Testament law because it hadn't related to them. Now, let me be clear. The Old Testament law was not bad. Paul, throughout his letter to the Romans, even Jesus, stated that he didn't come to abolish the law, but actually to fulfill it. Well, what does that look like? What does that mean? Well, Jesus came to show us how to have a right relationship with God as well as a right relationship with each other. That's exactly what the law was designed to do. The problem with the law, though, is it had no solution to help you and me who are incapable of being perfect in our relationship with God and certainly imperfect in our relationship with others. Jesus came to bring us righteousness, to make us righteous in the sight of God. Jesus says, and Paul reiterates, what we eat, what we drink, what we choose not to eat or not to drink, even the way that we celebrate God's presence in our life is not what makes us righteous. He said this in Romans chapter 3. Look at what Paul says. Now, apart from the law, a righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and and prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Since this is true, Paul says that we should live in response to it and it changes the way that we treat others. We should be patient and gracious toward those who are wrestling with what this looks like, what, maybe what not to be so focused on what eating or drinking or how we celebrate. We should be considerate to them. Paul says, be accepting, be patient, be loving. In verse 4, Paul says this in chapter 14. He says, why are you judging others? Who are you to judge someone who is someone else's servant? He's speaking that both Jews and Gentiles have the same master, and that's Jesus. In verse 5, Paul says, you should be fully convicted of what God is asking of you personally. 
but not to use that as a measuring stick or as a punishing rod for others, especially those within the context of the faith community. In chapter 14, verse 7, Paul gives these instructions. He says in verse 7, none of us live our lives alone, and none of us die for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me and every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. There were certainly differences in the convictions as even the practices about eating, drinking, and worshiping among those who were followers of Jesus in Rome. And there still is quite a variety of conviction and practice among those who call themselves Jesus followers today about some of the similar things. For some Christ followers, even today, they worship on Sunday. Some worship on Saturday, others on Monday, and some even on Thursday. Some followers of Jesus this very morning who are gathering will choose to use instruments like we do here at Crossroads, and others will not choose to use instruments. It's a way of worship for them. Some choose to go through creeds and responsive readings. Others just a little more impromptu in their prayers. Some celebrate the Lord's Supper weekly. Some do it monthly, others quarterly. Some teach you should abstain from drinking alcohol completely, while others give you that flexibility or that freedom. Some teach that women can hold leadership roles in the church while others don't. All of these are examples of what Paul has labeled disputable matters in Romans 14, verse 1. And trust me, there are many, many more. But Paul points out what really matters as followers of Jesus and that's the gospel. It's why Paul has been so deliberate helping followers of Jesus know what the gospel is all about in Rome and even here today. What separates Christianity from all other religions is the truth about the gospel. And what unites all of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus is the same, the truth of the gospel. We've already sang about this truth today we did that in a song talking about this is what I believe. And all the statements of the, that song are actually from what's called the Apostles' Creed. Not because the apostles wrote this creed, but because it represents the true teachings about Jesus that we find in Scripture. Maybe many of you in this room today grew up in an expression of faith that repeated the Apostles' Creed every time you gathered for worship. And maybe others might hear some of these words this morning and be triggered by them. Let me show you what the Apostles' Creed says. You'll recognize these words, hopefully. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell, and the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and he sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, 
and the life everlasting. Those are true spiritual, scriptural things that point to us what is indisputable about Jesus. Now, some of those phrases might be unfamiliar to you. They might trigger some curiosity, like this one phrase, the Holy Catholic Church. If you notice in the Apostles' Creed, Catholic is not capitalized. It's not a reference to the Roman Catholic Church, but the true definition of that word Catholic is the one universal church, uniting all those who have the same faith in Jesus Christ, all the things that are included in the Apostles' Creed. You might also catch that phrase, the communion of saints. Well, what's that a reference to? Is it the Lord's Supper? Well, sort of. It actually is a reference that unites all those who are followers of Jesus, past, present, and future, about what is, around what is true of the gospel. It might be a picture of what the Hebrew writers calls that great cloud of witnesses. We're all united around the truth about who Jesus is. The Apostles' Creed puts in front of us what is inst- or undisputable about the truth of Jesus and the gospel. And that brings union with Christ and also unity with each other who have made a commitment to those same truths. In response, Paul says that we should show patience, even deference to each other. Look what he writes in Romans 14, now in verse 13. He says this, Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling or block or obstacle in the way of your brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, don't, do not let what you know is good be, speaking of, be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It's better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. Paul says a lot of things in there about how we should relate to each other based on the gospel being true. And the whole heart of that is to be gracious, patient, serving and deferring to the other person. What we believe about Jesus really does change the way that we live and how we treat others. We don't demand our own way, nor do we force people to follow our way. But out of conviction, we offer humility and patience and respect and grace and deference. I've been using that word deference and it might be unfamiliar to you. It's just a humble submission and respect of the other person based on the difference between what you might practice, what you might eat, drink, or even how you might worship. There's another couple catchphrases that might be helpful for us to have some handles about what Paul is saying. One of those is this. Don't make things black and white that the Bible doesn't. Another way to look at this is to say to another person, we don't have to be twins 
to be brother and sister. Which means we don't have to be identical in what we eat or drink or even how we worship to be brother and sister in Christ. Paul goes on to address what really is important as a response to the gospel. He writes this. May the God who gives you endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward one another that Christ had. So that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. I like to think that it's Paul who's offering a prayer for the Romans that God would give them patience and wisdom that they need so that they can have unity with each other, though they have very different convictions and practices. So that with one mind and with one voice, they could glorify and praise God. He actually says that unity actually does bring glory to God. And he gives an illustration of the Jews and Gentiles relating to each other, the coming together of those two different groups because of the gospel. That that's what it looks like when we live in unity with each other. But let's maybe make it a little more personal. Let me ask you, what would it look like for you as a follower of Jesus, as a response to the gospel, to be more patient and gracious, to express deference toward another follower of Jesus? Do you have someone that you know, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a coworker, that you've been critical or even judgmental towards because they have a different conviction or maybe they worship in a different way than you do. Maybe you find joy in debating them, proving your point, or maybe you just hold them at arm's length because they don't agree with you and you certainly don't agree with them. What would it look like if instead of responding that way, you had a genuine interest in their reasoning for why they behave the way they do, why they believe the convictions that they have, or why they worship the way they do. Instead of offering criticism, because it's a disputable matter, not something that you should be dogmatic about, what would it look like for you to have a genuine interest, concern, even an appreciation for how they worship or their convictions? I wonder, do you view another congregation in town as maybe the uh, opposing team or, or maybe even the enemy because of their size? Maybe they're larger than this congregation or smaller. Maybe it's because of the way they worship or what they have conviction around or maybe just simply a difference of opinion. What if instead you celebrated what we have in common instead of what we don't agree on? What if you made an honest attempt to appreciate their expression of faith instead of comparing or criticizing, maybe even found a way to worship with them occasionally? One of the closest friends I had in Noblesville within a professional realm was a guy named Tom Metzger. Tom and I met for coffee often. We had met at a, a local pastor's prayer time, and we started to look at what we had in common the things that we believed that were true from the Bible that we agreed on. Tom was actually the priest at Our Lady of Grace Catholic Church. I passed that church every day on my way from my house to the congregation I serve. And over friendship and appreciating what we shared in common, we had a deep bond of fellowship and brotherhood. We recognized that we had lots of things that we disagreed on, that we didn't practice the same way, but I truly believe that 
Tom Metzger loves Jesus with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Jesus is his Savior and Lord. And because of that, I would often say to Tom, you know, Tom, everybody calls you father, but I just call you brother. And that kind of describes the relationship that Tom and I had. Uh, Just a couple weeks ago, our congregation said goodbye to uh, a dear family of our congregation, Ross and Candace Chapman. They actually relocated from here in Evansville out to Denver, Colorado. Ross, who has been serving as one of our elders here at Crossroads, also served locally by leading an organization called For Evansville. He's actually preached at Crossroads many times. He's now leading an institute called the Institute of Faith and Work in Denver. But while Ross was here working with Fort Evansville, he often loved to ask this question in many settings. He would say, how many churches are there in Evansville? And people could quickly do some math just by the number of churches they would drive by, probably going to their place of worship on Sunday morning, or just the churches they were familiar with, or ones they'd even worshiped at. And through simple math, they might come up with a couple hundred. But the right answer to that question is one. There's one church in Evansville. It's united around what I just pointed out in the Apostles' Creed, the true things about who Jesus is and the gospel. Those are the indisputable truths that bring unity to the body of Christ. And because of that, I've extended a hand of fellowship and brotherhood to Dear friends in this community that I have personal relationship with, even though I'm sure there are things that we might not agree on, there are the right things, the indisputable things of which we do. And that's why I've been praying regularly for my friend Mike Claypool, who's the pastor at Living Word Christian Church in Newburgh. That's why Kevin Brimner and I have coffee and breakfast often because we believe in what each other is doing to reach this community as on the same team. That's why I have a relationship with Prince Samuels at Bethel Church and Brett at One Life. And it's also true for Bobby Pell, who comes from a Baptist background, and Brett Doniger, who's from the Wesleyan background. It also is true about friends that, uh, like Reverend Barnes and Larry Rasco, people that we all have very different perspectives, but we have one thing in common, and that's the truth of the gospel about Jesus Christ. We're on the same team. And we have the same mission. That's to take the good news that we believe to the world around us. Paul, again, says the truth of the gospel is what unites us. Not what day we meet, not what we eat, or not what we drink, or what we abstain from. Not even how we celebrate God's presence in our life. We have to be discerning, my friends, but we also have to be gracious. We have to be deferring. We also have to be unified. And I love what Paul does. He prays that the Romans and us would have help from God. Look at his prayer in Romans 15, 13. He says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's a great prayer to steal, my friends. You ever wonder, like, what should I pray for my kids or my spouse or my family or my coworkers? Steal a prayer from Paul would be my recommendation. And that one is a really good one. Paul then kind of spends some time in the rest of chapter 15 and 16 just speaking of his personal commitment to taking the gospel to the Gentiles. We go all the way back to chapter 1 where Paul said, I've been set apart as an apostle, a servant 
to take the gospel to places it's never gone before. And he tells the Romans that that's why he's written to them and that he also wants to come and visit them in person. Up until this point, Paul had never visited Rome. He had just written to them. He says, before I can come visit, I have a job to do. I have to take an, an offering that's been received from the Gentiles, people from Macedonia and Achaia, and I have to take this offering to Jerusalem. The Gentiles have heard about the needs of the people, the Jewish people in Jerusalem, and they've responded in generosity. And Paul says, I got to take this offering to them. What a beautiful picture of what it looks like for us to be unified by the gospel and motivated to live in response to it. It should compel our hearts to be unified and helpful, even concerned about others. And Paul stresses that that's what he wrote to the Romans. In fact, some people think that Paul says, I'm going to come to visit you, and when I come to you, I'm going to ask you to collect an offering. Some people think that's why Paul wrote to the Romans his only reason, one large financial appeal. Doesn't that sound fun? But I think what Paul, his words actually speak for himself. He wrote to them to proclaim the gospel. Paul closes his letter much like he closes all of the letters that we have uh, captured in the New Testament to look at. He does so by writing a bunch of like shout outs and uh, greetings to people that are listed. Romans 16 has a bunch of those. I'm not going to read Romans 16 to you today. The biggest reason is I probably can't correctly pronounce all the names that Paul speaks to in those chapters. That's why in this moment, I like to pull out my phone to the YouVersion Bible app and hit the play button because that narrator does a great job pronouncing all of those names. I have no idea how to pronounce but I don't want to miss the significance of what Paul is doing here. In the last part of the letter, chapter 16, Paul lists 16, or he, in chapter 16, lists 26 different individuals and five different groups of people that he addresses. And within that groups of people, there's all kinds of people represented. There's church leaders, there's religious leaders, there's uh, political leaders, there's men, there's women, there's slaves, there's wealthy people, there's Jews and Gentiles, there's even a set of twins in there. I thought that was unique. There are many people who are well-known, but there are also lots of people who are unknown. The majority of those people are people just like you and me, people who are everyday people who are focused on what the gospel means to them and are so moved by the gospel that they've responded by living lives that bring glory to God and also participating in taking the gospel to the rest of the world. We learn some things about Paul in these addresses to people. He, we recognize that he's certainly a people person. He's giving all these shout outs to people that he actually has never met in person, but you can tell they have a, a really special connection. He also shows that he's not a solo act. He's more than willing to engage other people and let them use their gifts in helping take the gospel to the Romans as well as to the rest of the world. We also see that he is a person who highly values both the role that men and women play in the local church. We also say that he's so focused on the gospel and the unifying effect of the gospel that he just can't quit talking about it. I hope this week, maybe even today, you'll read the rest of this chapter, chapter 16, 
And as you do, I hope that you'll just not picture yourself as one of the recipients of the letter to the Romans, but actually one of these people that Paul mentions specifically by name. And you'll be prompted to think about how is your life being lived in response to the gospel, as well as how are you participating in taking the gospel to the rest of the world. Paul gives a final warning in chapter 16, verse 17. He says this, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you've learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. In that short little uh, admonition, I think we see the tension that Paul is asking us to live with. Be wise and discerning. Be innocent about what's good. Be, be innocent of evil. Wise about what's good, innocent about what's evil. Paul stresses the importance of knowing what the truth is, especially as we hear other people teach, those whose motives may not be pure. Don't be naive, Paul says, or misled. And I love what he also points out, don't forget who wins. He says, God will crush Satan underneath your feet. The source of chaos and confusion, even conflict in any church is one source, and that source is Satan. He wants nothing more to distract us from what the gospel is all about and the mission that God has given us. So be wise, be discerning, be innocent, and be unifying. Paul closes the letter with another final word of petition and praise. We would actually call it a doxology. Listen to what he says. He says, now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with the gospel, the message I've proclaimed about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles, actually that includes you and me, may come to the obedience that comes from faith. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ, amen. Paul declares that through the gospel, we are firmly established in communion with God, as well as we get the benefit and can enjoy the responsibilities of community with each other. He also points that God deserves the praise for all that he has done through Jesus Christ. I started this series by sharing about letters. Speaking of letter writing, and I actually mentioned that I received several letters from my dad, handwritten letters. He never used a computer. Those letters uh, consisted of um, encouragement and admonition, certainly uh, several moments of correction, and just things that he never wanted me to, to, or wanted to never go unsaid. I also mentioned that at the start of this series, I had just recently dropped off my youngest child at her freshman year of college and that I had made a commitment to her to write a handwritten letter to her every week of this first semester. We're about 10 weeks in, she seems to be doing well and I'm, I'm nine for nine. I have a letter to write this week and watch, I'll, you know, pride goes before destruction. I'll end up breaking a finger this afternoon or something, right? But in those notes, I've just tried to convey to her, first of all, 
how much God loves her, how much I love her, things I don't want her to miss out, things that I feel like need to be addressed. One of those um, notes just had some real strong, like, don't say tired every time somebody asks you how you're doing. That's just kind of the nature of one of those notes. You can tell it wasn't all, it hasn't all been hearts or flowers, okay? But today I want to challenge everyone here to actually write a letter. The art of letter writing is kind of a thing of the past, it seems. But I think there's something that could be very meaningful for you to take the initiative to write a letter to somebody. Who would you write to? Well, let me pose a couple of options. The first person you might choose to write to is maybe your child. Maybe somebody that you would write, whether your child is five or 55, it really doesn't matter. Take a few moments to write them a letter, a handwritten letter that just expresses to them how much they're loved by God, how much you care for them, how much you're proud of them. Sure, you can throw in some affirmation and maybe a little admonition, a few little encouraging words, uh, maybe some correction. But I would choose to follow the example of Paul and, and make it encouraging and affirming as much as possible. Maybe the letter you need to write is actually to a friend or a coworker. Maybe it's a neighbor. It's just somebody that you might know is going through a rough time right now. And maybe God's placing them on your heart just to take the moment to encourage them, to give them some words of encouragement, to let them know that you care for them. That might be one of the best ways you could respond to the gospel even today. Maybe the person you need to write to is somebody that you're at odds with specifically because it's a different conviction that you share that that person shares. Or maybe it's a difference in the way that they worship or a way that they express their faith. And I'd encourage you, instead of writing to them and telling them all the reasons you believe what you believe, write them a word of affirmation that just recognizes how seriously they take their faith, how strong you notice their convictions are, and just affirm them for trying to live in response to the gospel in a very tangible way, which seems to be the hardest way, hardest thing for us to do to connect Sunday to Monday. Or maybe finally, you just need to write yourself a letter. Maybe the reason you need to write yourself a letter is because nobody knows better than you the ways that you have fallen short of the glory of God and sin. Nobody knows better than you the ways that you've exchanged worship for the creator, for worship for created things. Nobody knows better than you how you've allowed the sinful nature to control your life more than you've let the Holy Spirit control your life. So what would you say to yourself? You might say, self, don't ever forget who God is. Don't forget that God is holy, he's just, he's powerful, he's faithful, he's also loving and gracious and forgiving. He is so much all those things that he wanted a relationship with you so much that he decided to send Jesus, his only son, and let him die on the cross so that you could be his son or daughter. Remind yourself that because that is true, the only response you have is to des a desire and an action to live your life in response to the way that God has loved you and all that he has done for you. And you do that by just living lives that glorify him. And also by joining him in the mission that he's given. Remind yourself that he's given you a gift. Every one of you, that's just true. He's given you a gift to be able to contribute to what he's doing in the world around. Make a commitment to yourself. 
to live differently because the gospel is true. You know, we thought it might be important to try to remove all the barriers that you might think of before writing a letter. And so today as you leave, we've given you a piece of stationery, an envelope. We've even put the stamp on it, okay? Talk about removing the barriers. You're gonna have to come up with a person and find their address. But I'd encourage you not to go to bed tonight before you take the time just to write a letter as a response to the gospel. You know, as a community of faith, we choose every week when we gather for worship to remind ourselves of who God is, the fact that he wants to have a relationship with us so much that he gave Jesus to us as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He exchanged Jesus so that he could have us as his children. And we have a responsibility because of that. That is to live lives to glorify God and to join him in the work he's doing in the world around us. All that is what we never want to forget. And God knew that we needed reminded of that. And so he instituted a time for us to remember that. We call that the Lord's Supper. So what we're going to do right now is just remember the gospel in very tangible way. A small cracker reminds us of Jesus' sinless life and the sacrifice he made of his life and his body. The small cup of juice reminds us of the blood that was shed for us. People ask me all the time, like, who can participate in the Lord's Supper at Crossroads? And I usually just respond with a simple answer. That is, anybody who claims Jesus as the Lord and Savior of their life. And so if that description fits you today, I'd encourage you to join in as we remember Jesus. Let's do that right now.